0: This morning, I wanna talk to you about your defining moment. And more specifically, I wanna talk to you about how the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ has opened the opportunity or the possibility of your uh, defining moment. Now, defining moments are times, circumstances, and experiences that ultimately change the trajectory of our life forever there are a permanent trajectory change there, that's what a defining moment is. How I many of you have already had certain defining moments in your life already? Yeah, many of you. And, and, and uh, so we're going to talk about that today, but defining moments can be good and they can be bad. But let me tell you a good defining moment. I want to tell you a story about a maid from Argentina. Uh, she was a retired maid. Her name's Eva Paoli. I hope I'm saying her name right. And uh, Eva when Eva had thought she was uh, born to this lady and, and this lady's partner, who they weren't married, but they were together. She thought this male partner of her mother was in fact uh, her father. But after her mother died, she began to get rumored that her father might in fact be a very wealthy uh, land baron, a man named Rufino Otero. So she went on a nine-year journey to find out if this is true, and without making a long story short, after some DNA tests and, and, and a nine-year legal struggle, once she got through that, it was confirmed, in fact, that she was the daughter of this wealthy, uh, wealthy land and that battle that had ensued made her $40 million richer. Here, here's, my, here's the point to that. Who her father was defined who she was and what was available to her. And we're in a series right now called Who Are You? And we're looking at who Jesus is because who Jesus is defines who we as Christians are. Does that make sense? And so I can't be a follower of Christ without the impact and the reality of who he is having an impact on me. And so the first week we looked at Christ as our reconciler. And because Jesus is our reconciler, there's this reality that, that Christ is in us speaking to the world, be reconciled to God. It defines who we are. Christ is our righteous King, and Pastor Steve pointed out last week of uh, the reality of what it means to submit and surrender to Jesus as a King, and that we're advancing a kingdom, and, and that God calls every knee to bow and every tongue confess and to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's the call of the church. And today I want to look at uh, this idea of who Jesus is as our great High Priest, and I think it's one of the most important callings, maybe the most important reality of who Jesus is. Its impact on the church is found in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and Revelation 5, verse 10. And all these verses have one common statement, that the church of Jesus Christ is a priesthood. Peter says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation of peculiar people. You were born to show forth the praises of God. John, later in the book of Revelation, says that God's called us to be a kingdom. Of priestly people, a kingdom of priests. I don't know about you, but the first time the Lord told me to study this in 2003, I had no idea what that meant or what that looked like. Priest. Uh, for me, the priest was what Catholics did, and those guys that wore black—you know, the black and white colors, and you know, or, or you come from a Lutheran background, and that, and that. I came from a non—I was a non-Christian. I was not raised in the church, and so I didn't know what a priest was. And so I went on this journey to study the Bible. And to look at the priesthood. Here's some things I discovered, though. Being a priest looks like something, just like being a Christian looks like something. And the big idea of being a priest or priestly is a priest was someone who would be a mediator between God and the people that God sent them to speak to. They would go between. But more importantly, in the practical side of being a priest, the priest would minister to the Lord. You know, I want you to think about this for a minute, but a lot of times when you come to a local church experience, wherever you do that at, we expect to be ministered to. We expect to, to, to worship and we expect to do things, but mostly we expect to hear a message and we hope that message helps and it you know, makes us better. But, you know, really the most important part of our experience on Sunday mornings to me, and I believe to the Lord, is when we praise Him, when we worship Him and it's especially probably more true in the first service, but, but when people trickle in late, I, I get it, we have struggles to get here. I just think that happens because we don't have a revelation about how much this part, the singing part, the praising part matters to the Lord. It ministers to the Lord. I don't know if, uh, today all I want to focus on is this one idea that you can minister to the Lord and it, it will have a profound impact on your own heart and uh, life. And so the question I have is, what does it mean for you and me if we're called to be priests? Does it practically define us? Is there anything we need to practically do to live a priestly lifestyle? Well, let me just answer in the emphatic yes. Yes, it absolutely matters that we are are called or we're defined by being a priesthood. Secondly, there are things that we need to do. There are choices that we need to make that will ultimately create defining moments that will set the trajectory of our life. I don't know if in the book of Revelation it says this as well. Out of all the callings that we have, you could be a business owner, a father or mother. You could be an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. You can occupy a lot of different stations in life, but the Bible says this priestly ministry is the one that will never end. It's going to go on forever. And that's really important because that's at a core part of our identity that it might be important for us to understand what it means for us. And how to walk it out. Anybody else interested? Wanting Anybody want to learn more about this day? The rest of you can leave. <laughs> let's, let's dive into this first idea. I want to help you understand what it means. How do we fulfill our priestly calling? What does it mean to do that? First, before we do that, you need to understand something. Christ's priestly ministry, Christ defined what's possible for your life through his priestly ministry. And by his priestly ministry, I'm talking about his coming as a baby. His living a life unto God to please the Lord in a sinless life. His death on a cross and a resurrection defined what's possible for our lives. Now, before I dive into Christ's priestly ministry, because I really want you to appreciate what he did, I want you to understand uh, the biblical priesthood in Israel's day, what was called the Levitical priesthood. There was a tribe called the tribe of Levi. The Levites were chosen to be the priesthood uh, of Israel. Yet in the day that Moses erected a tabernacle, which would be the first temple for the Jews the temple had three areas. They had this outer court that was like an open sky, I think like a courtyard, that was open. So they would take their, their mobile tent and when they would set this up, for those who did the portable church thing with us for three years, you got a good idea of what it takes to do that. I don't know how fast they did it. I don't know if they got set up in, in, in an hour, but, uh, but they would set up this portable Worship structure, and it had this big. It had a big courtyard made of of badger skins or tents, and and in this courtyard, it had this uh, big barbecue uh, out there. They called the bronze altar. But it, if you walked it off, it might be something like this. I mean, it was huge, and and there they would sacrifice uh, a bull, or, or you know, a goat, or a lamb, or something, and they would take uh, they would take the blood and prepare it to go into the rest of the temple for the ministry. And then the priest would come over to this bronze laver. It was a bowl, it was bronze and it had water in it. They would wash off the mess from the sacrifice. And then they would put a new robe on super symbolic uh, of transformation or change. And then they would go into this other place that was completely covered. It was dark in there until the menorah was lit. Of course, they kept the menorah lit and the menorah was a seven lampstand candle that was burning with, from, from oil fuel and it had these reflective uh, leaves on it that would shine across the room onto this table that had bread on it they called the table of showbread and they would change that bread out every day. You step over this way and there would be this uh, altar of incense that would be right in front of another uh, curtain that was 10 curtains thick and it would be in front of this, this, this uh, tall, like 80 foot high. Uh, it, was, it was really tall, I mean, it was big, and uh, curtain. And it had this, uh, this incense going. And then beyond that, into this other room, was this room that the high priest alone could go once a year. One man, once a year, could go into this room. And in this room, carried this ark, or held this ark of the covenant. Now, some of you would have grown up seeing uh, movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know I'm showing some of our age here. Some of you are like, I don't know what that movie is. Just fast forward to the last scene. You'll get an idea of what I'm talking about with the Ark of the Covenant. Or close to the last scenes. You'll, you'll get it to the climactic moment. But, but basically the Ark of the Covenant carried uh, Aaron's rod. That buddha which represented God's authority. The commandments of God. And, uh, and then this symbol of provision in the form of these jars of manna that they kept inside here. And it, this represented the very presence of God to the Israelites. The high priest was only allowed to go in there once a year on the day of atonement to offer sacrifices now I want you to understand how fearful it was for them to approach the high priest according to Jewish tradition and legend had uh, these bells and pomegranates at the, at the at the end of the skirt of the the robe that they would wear and so these little bell these pomegranates were like fabric balls as it were and then of course the bell so think of like a wind chime but a lot softer Right, And they would walk around, and you would hear them, ding, 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 while they're walking around doing their service in there. And they might walk, and they might go off for the, take the blood in. They would take the blood of the sacrifice, and on the Ark of the Covenant, there was these two gold cherubim, they were angels that were bowed over. And then there was this thing called the mercy seat in the center, where they would put the blood uh, from that sacrifice there. And ideally, if God accepted the sacrifice, that on the Day of Atonement, Israel's sins would be forgiven for the year. But the legend has it that if they would tie a rope to the ankle of the priest so that if God didn't accept the sacrifice and they stopped hearing the bells and he dropped dead, they could drag his body out. Now, whether that legend's true or not, it's not the most important part here. People are like, that's like an urban legend. I'm going to get on Snopes and find out if that's true. <laughs> You're missing the point. The point is, is the Jews had this idea of a very fearful approach into the presence of God. And what makes what Jesus did so meaningful? Well, I'll show you what it did. It's because it's a symbol of what Christ would introduce. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says this. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He's entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle. Not the symbolic one, but the one in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not a part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. I want to tell you what it looked like practically on the earth when that happened. Jesus comes as a baby. He grows up, he does good to all, he's beaten. Took the worst beating a human could take. He had his flesh ripped open with a a cat of nine tails. Crown of thorns shoved on his head. And they hang him on the cross. And as he's dying on the cross, he says, Along with forgiving humanity, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he, he lets out this, this battle cry, this word to telestine. He says, or teleos, depending upon your translation. But the idea is, it is finished. But it is finished doesn't quite cut it. Because, like in the movies when you watch it, it's like this week it is finished. Like, it is finished. But that isn't what happened. It was a, it even says it was a loud cry. And Hebrews records it later. With vehement cries, he cried out to God. When he said it is finished, it was, it is finished. Complete. die, And it was the same thing a soldier would do in battle when they would finish off their enemy. die. Uh. And he knew, the Bible says in Colossians, that he triumphed over Satan. He made a public spectacle out of him in that moment. The devil thought he was winning, and in that moment, Jesus flips it around and, no, we win. Yeah. Yeah. What happened in that moment is that, that curtain that was before this place, that the high priest could only go once a year, the Bible says it ripped from top to bottom. Ten curtains, it's faz- a thick badger skins, man. Ten of them. Come on, hunters. Yeah. How thick would that be? That's thick. Man's not ripping that. It says it was torn from top to bottom, which means God did it. What was God saying through that act? I sent my son to die on the cross to open a way into this holiest of places that no man could go. One man could go only once a year. You can come any time you want. I want you in my presence. That's what the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ did for us. Christ's ministry as great high priest did several things for those who believe. First of all, he identified with our humanity. He was tempted at every point we are and understands what you face. He didn't wanna stay far off judging you. He wanted to come experience the life you experienced with all his temptations so the Bible says that he could be a compassionate high priest for you and me. Second, he broke the power of sin and Satan and reconciled us into a relationship with God. He brought us in that relationship. Third, he cleansed our conscience concerning our sins by paying our debt. How many know what you owe somebody? You ever owe somebody money? Some of you are too cool, you know, I always manage my money perfectly. I'm not talking about you people. I'm talking about those of us who did manage perfectly. And you get a loan and you know you owe that person and you see them and you're like, oh, I don't wanna see them. What's happening? Your conscience is awakened. Well, what would happen if somebody came up and satisfied that debt to your debtor and said, here, I'm paying off that 10,000 they owe you. Here, here's a check. It's no more. When you see them, you can see them with a clear conscience. Why? Your debt's been paid for. That's what he did with our sins so that we could come before him not remembering those things. We can just focus on our relationship with him. He did all that though to do these next two things. He did that to give us a new nature. And by new nature, I mean, now you want to obey God. Now, I don't know how it worked for you when you said yes to Jesus Christ, and maybe some of you here haven't done that yet, but when I said yes to Jesus Christ, and I said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life, I felt a great guilt, a sense of guilt, and all that stuff roll off. And for those of you who've done that, you know what I'm talking about. You know what it means to have peace with God. And I wanted to please God, but let me just tell you, after I did that, I didn't, I didn't go live perfectly. Anybody else who said that? You, did you, you live perfectly? No. no, I'm just kidding. I'm playing. No, no, you didn't. No, well, we didn't live perfectly. We, 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 so all, for me, I always said yes to Jesus, but then I kept doing all my same stupid stuff. But the difference was when people say, you will be born again, what's it mean to be a born again Christian? I don't know for sure. I, well, I mean, I do, but I'm, 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 I'll be a little coy there and say it this way. I know what was born again in that moment for me was my conscience. And all the things I used to do I couldn't do without my conscience deeply slapping me around going, "You can't do that anymore." Ch-ch-ch-ch. Come on, man. And what happened inside me is I had a new desire to please the Lord that would again become a defining moment that would set the trajectory for the rest of my life. And the fifth thing that he did for the, the fifth thing that he did for us, and so the thing I want to focus the rest of our morning on is this. He opened a way into the presence of God for us just like I described. In fact, oftentimes when we think about Christmas and we celebrate this time of year, we think about the birth, we think about a baby and a manger, and we think about these things, but that all had an intended end. He didn't just come to be a baby. And when we celebrate this, this idea of Advent, the idea of Advent and where we're in this season of Christmas is this idea that Advent just means coming, we're the first. So we're celebrating the first and then looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he came the first time, he came to pay for our sins. He came to break the power of darkness. He came to open a way into the presence of God for us. In fact, I would say it's the greatest Christmas gift he gave you. You know, look in your Bible in the book of Luke. When it tells the story of Christmas, it talks about Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And and that just simply means, or Emmanuel means God with us, or God's presence with us. When the angels appeared to the shepherds, he said, look, we want you to, we don't, we, you guys got all kinds of ideas about God. So let me tell you what he's saying. And they sang a song that went something like this, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, towards humans. Okay, that's God's intention. Because you can have this idea of God who hates humans and wants to like destroy them. Let me just tell you, he's not lacking any power to accomplish that. Okay, that's not his heart. On the flip side, you could have this idea that God doesn't care about sin. He loves everybody. Just keep doing what you're doing. We all screw up. We can just keep doing that. No, he doesn't like that either. Yeah, it's good. He's a patient teacher. He's patient with your working through your humanity, but he fully expects you to ultimately be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Revelation says it this way, referring to the church as, as uh, the bride of Christ, as a picture it paints there. In the same way a bride would get ready for her wedding, the church is making herself ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you that I think at Christmas, the gift that he gave us was an open door into what Israel's high priests were only allowed to go in once a year. And and what they went into was a symbol of something much greater. Jesus entered into the reality of it in heaven and then invites us to go in as well. So why don't we go in more? Why don't we take advantage of this idea? Well, here's why. Your beliefs define what you will pursue with your life. Your beliefs define what you'll pursue with your life. Hebrews 4:14 4, through 16 says it this way. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, our faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet used without sin, let us therefore bold, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, again, a- accessing God is a gift. But I think when we talk about a place called the throne of grace, the problem with a lot of us is we see things that are spiritual. If I say the word, that's spiritual, people will think like, okay, that means symbolic, or that means figurative. And for some people, that just means flat out make believe. I want to suggest to you. I want to tell you. I'm not suggest to you. I'm going to just tell you plainly. The throne of grace. There's a throne there, and that throne room is a room. In other words, heaven is a place, a very real place. And when John, who told us about our own priesthood in Revelation chapter four and five, he gets an invitation from God. John, Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again. You can now come into my presence. John, I've opened the door in the heavens and I want you to come up here. And John said, immediately I was in the spirit. Now let me tell you what in the spirit was for him. It wasn't some figurative wispy thing. The first thing he says he sees is I saw one seated on the throne. And he looked like a jasper at a sardius stone. In other words, God really looks like that. His face shines like the sun in its strength. His eyes burn like a flame of fire. That's what it really looks like. He's seated. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So he is literally, positionally, and spatially on this side of God. There are actually uh, seven burning lamps around the throne that are really present there at the throne. There is a sea of glass like crystal mingled with fire and it's really there at the throne in that room. In that huge spatial reality, there are, there are four living creatures with eyes and wings on them and, and they really do flap and they really do burn like fire themselves. There are 24 elders around the throne that are bowing down. There are actually 24 of them, not 26. And then there's a whole seed, a multitude of people that no one can number. That place is the throne of grace. And that place is what Jesus Christ opened up to each one of us to access. Listen to this, not once a year, anytime we need help. Anytime we want to. When I don't need help, I just want to go tell them, you know what? I'm in a mood to tell you you're awesome, God. Anytime we want. We can come before that place. But you know what's beautiful? There's this multitude and people around and they're all worshiping. But this is what Ephesians tells us. You have been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, you are already seated in the spirit. The moment you said yes to Jesus, somehow God connected you up and you you are there in that place. So how do I access this throne of grace? We really complicate stuff. Let me ask you this. If you were going to drive to a city, you didn't know, most of us would pull up our GPS. We'd plug our coordinates into that GPS, and then we would trust the pathway that it gave us to get us there. Sometimes I don't trust my GPS, but God's better. The, the, the global positioning stuff has nothing on the God positioning system. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so I would plug in my coordinates, and then I'd begin to walk out where it sends me. So if I could put it this way, um, the throne room or the throne of grace Is the destination But Jesus is the way into that place He is the GPS as it, as it were He's the one who gets us in And on top of that He's not just a directional system He's the all access pass Are you following me? That was way better than your face He's the all access pass Into the presence of God And the way I go there is I just set my mind on things above. As Colossians says in Colossians 4, I set my mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the moment that I need help, I just go, God, I come to you right now. And I'm not letting my mind wander. I'm pulling it. I'm setting it in a direction. I'm plugging in the coordinates. That internal thing that knows you're focused on something. We all do it. Whether you're focused on a topic at school, something you want to do. I'm focused on God. I just know I am. And I do that by faith. And by faith in what he's done, I come before this throne of grace and I encounter those realities and those realities rub off on my life. Because again, as a priest, not only am I supposed to go in and praise the Lord and worship him and honor him, but out of that place, mediate, reveal him to others. Recently, I, uh, I needed to go to, uh, well, I wanted some new pots and pans for Lifeway because the other ones we had were quite inferior I like nonstick, not stick stick. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And we had stick-stick pans, so I was like, we're getting rid of those. I'm gonna get some nonstick ones. So I went down to Boskov's and I walked down there and I uh, I, I talked to this very uh, elderly lady who was helping me and I had this open box thing that I wanted and they didn't have any more, so I said, Can I take the floor th- ones? I like these, and I don't need a box, because I'm just gonna take them right down to the church down here, because that's where I'm getting them for. And can we do that? So she got another helper to see if they had any up, upstairs, and no, they didn't. So yes, I could have the boxed ones and unboxed ones. So we were checking it out, and I said, can I use one of your carts to go down to take it down there? I promise not to steal it, I'm a pastor. She goes, oh, no, I was never thinking. I would never think that. It's was like, she, she was seeing black and white collar, and I said, no, 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 no. I mean, think about it. There have been representatives of Jesus that have done really bad things to kids and hurt others, and this make making the news right now. I mean, I think there'd be a lot of reasons to not trust right now. And I said, you know, Jesus I mean, Jesus loves kids. You know, Jesus, Jesus loves you, kind of thing. And as I was talking to her, she just began to go, like, what's happening? I feel warm all over. And she began to cry. And I don't know why I'm crying. I'm like, and I know why she's crying. She's crying because she's experiencing the presence of God and she's experiencing the presence of love. And I'm telling you this because I am not special. I'm just somebody who does the stuff. I come and I seek God's face. And out of that face, I carry that to every place. And you can too. And that's what Jesus opened up. He didn't open up. See, the the high priest was somebody special. But when Jesus tore the curtain, he wasn't opening it up for somebody special. He was opening it up for everyone, whosoever will may come. If you believe, have faith, and you come, you can experience the presence of God yourself. So why don't we? Well, ultimately, because your choices define what you'll experience in your life, your choices. So even though Jesus makes it possible, and we know that realm is real and approachable, you still have to make the choice to come. The choice to come, the choice to be before God is not on autopilot, and I don't care if you're called to be the next intergalactic apostle to the universe, and you're gonna go start churches on the moon. You people are no fun today. Uh, you're gonna start churches wherever you still have to come to God your, your calling doesn't determ- really ultimately determine that and I, when I say when I talk about um, your choices and this kind of pursuit I'm talking about pursuing God and when I talk about pursuing God I'm talking about a combination of things like, like hunger and desire for God I'm thinking about faith and I'm thinking about choices and, and I want to illustrate that through the life of, of the prophet Samuel so uh, Samuel, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 through 10 says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And Eli was the high priest. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation, meaning people weren't getting communication from God. It came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, when his eyes had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was and while Samuel was lying down the Lord called to Samuel so understand where they're located remember that tabernacle I explained to you at the beginning of the message this is where they are at now it's bigger than my stage it's way bigger it's like a football almost like a half a football field or something it's big so they're in that place and while uh and while the Lord called to Samuel and, and Samuel answered here I am So Samuel's hearing a voice calling to him. And he ran to Eli, the priest, because he'd never heard the voice of God. He said, here I am, you called me. And he said, I didn't call you, go lie down again. Come on, how many parents I got here? Your kid tried that number on you. Here I am, mother or father, you know. Well, why are you here? I heard you call me. Right, go lie down. Especially on Christmas Eve, I'm just saying. Um, And so, uh, I'm getting distracted by my own jokes. Um, (laughs) The Lord called yet again to Samuel, and Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now, the Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again and the third time. And so he arose and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. The Lord had called the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be. If he calls you, you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. In words, Lord, my ear has been awakened. I am now actually hearing you. And so Samuel went and lay down in, in his place. And then the Lord came and stood and called as at the other time. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak, for your servant hears. This was Samuel's defining moment. This was the moment that would change the trajectory of his life for the rest of his life. And determined that he would become a prophet of God. Here's the thing that happens to a lot of people when they read this story. If you don't read around this story, you will lose sight of the fact that the Bible tells us that while Samuel was a child, he ministered to the Lord over and over and over again. He made a choice to minister to God when he didn't know how to minister to God. He made a choice to minister to God when his brothers, his adopted brothers, were evil. Most of the time, choices lead to our defining moments. In 1 Samuel 2, 11, uh, through verses 11 through 12, it says, Then Okanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child minister, referring to Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. There was this priesthood. They were the called ones. They were the ones chosen by God. And when the people of Israel bring sacrifices for them to offer, they would take the best of the sacrifices for themselves. They kind of misunderstood the idea of sacrifice, didn't they? Sacrifice for them became indulgence. They would have sexual relationship with women at the temple, not their wives, just random women using their priesthood in an abusive way and abusing their power. Now contrast that with Samuel. Samuel. I want you to imagine you're Samuel and your, your mom can't have a child and, and she's crying out and she said, God, he will give me a child, I'll dedicate him to the priesthood all the days of his life. And so if you'll just give me a child, I'll do that. And God grants her a child. So she makes good on it. She weans the child. Now in biblical times, weaning a child wasn't, wasn't just getting him on solid food. It was them being potty trained. It was them being functional in the basic understanding of the language. So let's just say about five years old or something like that, she dedicates him to the temple. And he gets to the temple. Now imagine your mom while you're a child, because I read we read we read stories to our grandchildren, right? And I have to read the Bible stories or whatever. Now imagine your Bible's not big in those days. Your whole Bible's like it's 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 you know it's it's Genesis to Deuteronomy, and, and you just went through the period of the judges where the Israel just went crazy, and you're like so you're a few, you're several hundred years removed from Joshua and Moses. And you're reading the stories about Moses and God talking to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then you hear how Joshua would stay at the tent and then you would encounter God. And then you hear about all the miracles. Now you're this boy and you get to go to that tabernacle, that temple. You get to serve there. That's where you get to go. It is the dream job of an orphan and he gets put in that place. And I just see him going in there. I can just imagine the first time he walked by the bronze altar. He saw the horns on the altar. Nobody's looking. Like ding, just touched it. Oh, I can't really touch it. You know, bronze altar. <laughs> you know, or laver. He, he he goes through, and maybe he comes in there. And he's like, Oh, I'm in the, I'm in the, I'm in the holy, holy place. So awesome! Look at that bread. I just want to eat it. No, oh, I don't eat it. The fire, oh, wow, Flame. gets over to the altar of incense and then realizes behind this curtain is what he would have seen as the presence of God. And there's a hunger and there's a desire in him and he knows he's not allowed to go through that curtain or he'll die. And I just imagine his heart. See, see, I think God looks at our hunger. And, and, and so here he comes up. I just picture Samuel just, just getting near that tent and going, oh, you know, the, there's... I just, you know, anoint means to rub or to smear. And he's just like, oh, I just wanna, I just want God's presence on my life. I wanna be close to God. Contrast that with, could you imagine Hofty and Phineas, his, his evil, it's like a Cinderella story, really, I've been saying, Got the evil step, so, you know, he's got his stepbrothers, you know, the evil stepbrothers. And, and I could imagine, hey, Samuel, we got this girl for you, bud, you wanna, you know? Samuel's like, no. No, I want the presence of God in my life. And I recognize priestly brothers that to be priestly requires sacrifice. We sacrifice animals for our own righteousness. And Samuel and and the prophets of old would prophesy a day that there would be one who would come, who would once for all put away all sin by the sacrifice of his life, by his high priestly calling. And he invites us to be like Samuel to come into that place. And I believe Samuel wasn't defined by the day God called him alone. He was defined by every choice that started with hunger. And maybe you're in this room today and you're, you're in a place yourself where you're like, and I know nothing about hearing God. Neither did Samuel. In fact, the is so strong, it says he didn't even know the Lord. He knew him about a legend. He didn't know him personally. All he had to have was some hunger, some desire to meet God, and God would be with him. The Bible says what God has given us in Jesus Christ is a new and living way. It is so much better. Samuel didn't have a book on Five easy steps to hearing God didn't exist. But God was big enough to communicate to him as he ministered to the Lord. Maybe you say, Jimmy, I have no idea how to minister to the Lord. What would would minister to the Lord? What could I possibly do? You know, neither did he. You know what ministers to the Lord? Your heart the heart desire to draw near to God, to encounter God, the desire to be surrendered to him, the desire to encounter him, the desire to resist the things of the spirit of the age and the lust of the flesh and the desires of that because you want something greater. See, I don't wanna to get to the end of my life with the biggest bank account and the best toys. I wanna to get to the end of my life with a heart that pleased God, with a life that pleased God and the, and the, uh, the commendation from Jesus when it's all done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Everything else won't matter on that day. Samuel understood that. And God said, Samuel, I can't at this season let you in to the Holy of Holies, but I can give you what the Holy of Holies would give you. I'm gonna open your ear to hear my voice. And Jesus actually allows us to come into that place, the throne of grace. He can teach you to hear him. God doesn't talk to people anymore. No, he just doesn't talk to dead people until they surrender their lives to Jesus, but he does talk. Why are some people so seriously excited about worshiping Jesus today, and some of you are not so excited about it? Some of us have had our ear open to his voice, and we're like, yeah, and he wants you to get in on it. I'm not telling you that to alienate you, I'm telling you that to invite you into something. And you have a choice, just like Hophni and Phineas. You can choose to reject God. You can choose to pursue the spirit of the age. You can choose a little bit of religion. You can choose to show up at church on Sunday, but those men perished. You know what happened to them? They ultimately went into battle and then they they died because religion ultimately deceived them. They thought if they could carry the Ark into battle like a lucky rabbit's foot, it would protect them from the consequences of their sinful lives. And God didn't care what their calling or their title was, and here's the point. You can be called to something but not live the life and God can reject you. And you cannot be called to something but because you want it so bad, God can say, well, I want you too then. That's exactly what happened to Samuel. Would you stand to your feet? How, how do we do this? Well... You know, practically speaking, Samuel began to do something. Sometimes we go on doing the same thing, hoping for different results. How's that working out for you? What if you would make a decision to try some things a little bit differently going into 2020? Every year, uh, both in January and in August, we have 21 days of prayer in the January 1 we we encourage people to fast from things during that time this idea of sacrifice being a priestly deal what would happen if you would dedicate yourself to the Lord in a fast and say God I I want like Samuel I'm approaching I'm doing a Samuel fast call it whatever name you want but the idea is I am hungering for your presence I'm denying myself the presence of food or something else in my life I'm going to fast from media and, and food and and those kind of things and some of you can do whatever, but I'm just saying I want something more than what the world is offering me. I want you. It's all by grace through faith. I don't want you to think you're earning it. I want you to see yourself as responding to the goodness of God that's already been given to you through Jesus. And I'm just trying to deny my earthly senses to awaken that realm. You know, when you we talked about the reality of that realm, here's here's the reality of it. Like spiritual doesn't just mean uh, like figurative or whatever. When you go from the physical realm into the spiritual realm, it's very real and tangible. What happens when we fast is we begin to awaken our senses to that. We, 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 we You can come pray with the church. We do it at 6 a.m. you pray again at noon. We pray at 7 p.m. on Mondays. We got like 11 prayer meetings a week. You can find one, I'm sure. If not, you can you can seek God on your own, but man, don't make excuses for not seeking God. We have core discipleship intensive starting uh, January 4th. Man, you can jump in on that and begin in, in five months. I mean, literally become another person. The synergy of seeking God, fasting, prayer, small group study of the word and going after the community of people as you, as you get walk in the light as he is in the light and the transforming power of that. I had a friend when it came to court just told me last night We said, come on, dude, you know, you want to do this. And he's like, Well, my wife and I are gonna pray about it. I said, Oh, I texted back, I said, Let me see how that conversation goes. Lord, do you want my wife and I to do this five month thing that would radically transform our lives, give us a fiery heart for you in simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ? No? That's for other people? Okay. See, it's amazing. We don't pray about the food we eat, the clothes we put on every day. We often don't pray about even what movies to see, whether it pleases God or not. But suddenly, when we're gonna dedicate our lives to God, we, I need to pray about that first. Could you imagine if Jesus came to the disciples? Hey, Peter, James, John, throw away your nets. Follow me. Let me pray about that. We wouldn't be reading about those guys right now, would we? They'd be named something else because he would have picked the ones that follow my question for you is how long, how many excuses will you make for the right time or the opportunity? Jesus told whole parables about this. Like the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet, a man threw it. He invited all his friends and they said, no, I can't come, man. My job's going on right now and I got to break in this, this new plow or this tractor. No, I'm getting married too. And they just had all their stuff. And, and, and Jesus was just like, go to everyone. else. they don't want to come, we'll go everywhere else then. Go to the highways, the byways, invite them. But you know what happened to the first ones? They just said, okay, they reject my invitation. I reject. It's like, I don't, I'm not saying it has to be core. My question is, I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today. What will you do with the invitation to draw near to the presence of God, that Jesus is open? It doesn't have to be what we do, but what are you doing with your life as it pertains to that? I opened this message with a story about a lady and her, her little, uh, I told you that you know defining moments can be good or bad. She had a great defining moment. Let me tell you about another one that's not so great, an unfortunate story. There was a homeless man in Bolivia named Thomas Martinez. He was the heir of a wealthy ex-wife. When the police came to bring him news of the $6 million inheritance, he ran away and disappeared because he seemingly thought the police were going to arrest him due to his drug and alcohol habits. His wife, Inez Gerardo. Uh, Alvarez inherited the money herself from her family and was going to pass it on to uh, Martinez as they never had children. Sadly, Martinez was never found again. His potential, his inheritance was to be a multimillionaire, but he made a choice, a choice that became a deciding moment, a defining moment in his life. He let his past sins of alcoholism and addiction get in the way of what was, had been given to him. And I think we often do the same thing with what Jesus Christ did on the cross and the resurrection. God promises us eternal life for those who surrender their lives to Jesus, that he'll forgive that. And unlike Martinez, I'm calling you to not run away today from what God wants to give you, but to receive what he has for us in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. For some of you, I wanna give you an opportunity to, to get in on the inheritance of God not said yes to Jesus or you've shown up at church and played religious like Hophni and Phineas, these priests while living a, this one kind of life here at church while living a whole another life all week and on, especially as it gets to Friday and Saturday the party lifestyle and whatever I know it I did it And there's a day I repented and I know if I hadn't I would have perished apart from God forever and God in his mercy said, I'm willing to forgive your sins, Jimmy and, I, and you just need to accept that I came. I died on a cross and I rose again and surrender to my leadership. You don't gotta be perfect. You just gotta be surrendered and willing to, to change and to be conformed to my image and I'll work with you. And some of you are here today and you need that. And Jesus wants you to have that. If you're here today and that's you, I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna call you up, but I do wanna pray for you. And I won't know unless you raise your hand. So raise your hand high right now. If that's you, let me pray for you. We'll raise their hands come on they can get the message four or five of you that's so awesome yay Jesus would you, would you join in praying let's pray something like this. say God I come to you in Jesus name I ask you to forgive me of my sins I want you to take me into your presence through that way that you opened up through your sacrifice I may not do this perfectly but I will do it wholeheartedly When I mess up, correct me. And and when I do well, encourage me. Help me to grow in the grace of God. Fill me and baptize me in your spirit. Strengthen me in your word and help me to grow. And lead me right now in what decisions I need to make to be discipled and grow, to lay hold of that for which you've laid hold of me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give God thanks for those who said yes to Jesus.